0: All right, thank you for tuning into to Transparency. Everybody, we have a, a very exciting episode today. We've got the world-famous, literally world-famous, uh, Lisa Shoup on with us. Um, uh, previously, or more, probably more uh, newsworthy, notably as, as Jamie Shoup, uh, Lisa now. Um, so she is joining us today to talk about her experience with um detransition, retransition, um, and everything uh, all in between. So thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Well, um, I think I would rather preface that with infamous
1: rather than famous. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I, I don't look, <clears throat> look back fondly on the whole thing. Um, I mean, if I could turn back the clock and, and make it disappear, I would. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of where I'm at on the non-binary thing. Okay. I don't. I don't think it's real. I don't think it's healthy.
2: You have a, a, a fascinating story um, in terms of how, how you became that. Is it, is it North America or the first American legally non-binary person? Can you maybe tell um, a bit about that story and how that came to be?
1: Yeah, it's, it's well, you know, for the, I'm the first legally non-binary person in the United States. Um, I, I'm not sure about Canada, whether they, I don't think they had any legal recognition at the time.
0: And this was 2016, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, I just had the anniversary not long ago, the five-year anniversary on June 10th, 2016, and that, that was kind of traumatic
3: too.
1: Um sorry were you are you wanting to hear how it kind of came about?
2: Yeah, if if you wouldn't mind just telling that story of, of how that how that came about and why you decided to, to become legally non-binary.
1: Yeah. It's lengthy. I'll, I'll try to shorten it up for as much as possible. But so I, I did a gender transition to female in 2013. And it was um, literally it kind of mirrored the rapid onset gender dysphoria situation, you know, because we should, well, let's let's go back a little bit to to my childhood. OK, my childhood was kind of like the desert island thing. I wasn't exposed to any gay people. I knew nothing, absolutely nothing about transgenderism, transsexuality. I then went into the military and, you know, of course I was aware of gay people, but the transgenderism thing was still, you know, not on my radar whatsoever. And and I also didn't research it because once I started cross-dressing, you know, I was literally like scared that if I ever got investigated for, you know, having sex with men, that that might come up too. You know, they would, you know, for instance, like, you know, CID might go in and check my my web history. So I, I just I never. It was kind of like Pandora's box that I never opened. And you know, my start down the gender path was actually pornography. It was a really interesting. Thing. Article from um, Dr. Kenneth Zucker, and he actually mentions that uh, in it, that pornography is one of the triggers for transvestic fetishism. So I started becoming heavily involved in pornography as a means of as it was a stress relief because you know drugs are a career ender and alcohol was a career ender and I was seeing you know, large numbers of people flame out, especially from alcohol. So you know, pornography seemed relatively harmless. Okay. So, so I started viewing a lot of pornography and the way it affected me was I started seeing myself as, as as in the role of the female, you know, when I, it was, it was straight porn. You know, I looked at a male and a female having sex and I was identifying more and more with the female. And that eventually led to cross-dressing and that eventually led to having sex with men, you know, dressed as a female and imagining myself as a female.
0: Can I stop you real quick? Sure. So you had, I know you weren't aware of any of, of transgenderism as a, you know, as a young person before, probably in the military, you're saying may, in, probably in your 20s that you got, got, uh, got like basically developed a porn addiction, correct? Mm-hmm. So you don't have any um, any kind of I know I Blanchard talks about there's usually like a an early prepubescent um uh interest in in um in cross dressing or some sort of some sort of female uh role playing that usually early in life that you're saying that didn't happen for you, nope, okay, and okay. and you know back to the
1: desert island thing, okay, so I was in a family of all boys. My sister wasn't born until literally like when I was going into the military. There was there was eight of us kids, seven boys and one girl, and my mother was you know constantly pregnant, um, having babies. She, I would not describe her as feminine whatsoever. You know there there were no none of those influences. You know I wasn't sneaking around in anybody's underwear drawer or you know, nothing. Like you know, I with no exposure to it whatsoever. It wasn't in my life It never even occurred to me It all manifested after the pornography thing. And, you know, I went through the military like that, you know, cross-dressing, you know, occasionally having sex with men um, as cautiously as possible. And, you know, I popped out of the military like that. And, you know, by then I I was the the father of a daughter and, you know, I, I retired in 2000 because of an injury. And then I spent for literally from 2000 to, to 2012, you know, just being involved in, you know, you know, being her father, making sure she had a place to live and all that good stuff, you know, taking care of her needs and didn't act on it whatsoever. And then I had a mace, like a super major mental health crisis between 2011 and 2012. And I mean, it was really bad. I, Destroyed like a $365,000 house. My PTSD was out of control. Uh, paranoid, paranoid ideation. I literally thought like the FBI was after me. I mean, it was, it was crazy stuff. And after the house ordeal, I lived in hotels for six months. I'm still thinking that like the FBI was after me, that they were going to arrest me because I had gotten into it with the neighbors, with... You know, glocks and assault rifles and all that sort of crazy military crap and eventually i ended up in a cabin in western maryland and i'm way off deep in the woods and i was like okay you know what's wrong with me you know yeah i've got to do something about this before i end up getting arrested and i got on the internet and started you know researching mental health and, and i it started linking to your know, gender identity disorder um, and transsexualism and all that. And back to literally like the ROGTG thing is literally as soon as I discovered that stuff it was like bam this is what's wrong with me and you know if I do a gender transition I'll be fixed it's going to help my mental health issues. And there was and there was lots of bad enablers that made the whole thing worse. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen my interview with Benjamin Voice but um you know, but there's a screenshot on there. All right. I'm sure y'all are familiar with Dr. Norman SPAC, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So SPAC is, is basically like the grandfather of puberty blockers. He's the one credited with pioneering their use in the United States. So around the time I'm going through this meltdown, um, SPAC does an interview and, and it claims that puberty blockers and gender transitions can cure bipolar disorder, which is one of my diagnoses, mm-hmm. And then one of the um, WPATH gurus, which is Ann Vitale had another article and she was framing it as she she's, Vitale is a trans woman. I didn't know that at the time, but Vitale was claiming that you know, this was like an anxiety-based disorder. And that again, you know, hormones and a gender transition can fix this stuff. So, you know, I jumped in feet first into the gender transition and that was in early 2013. Um, literally like hormones on the first day, first, first time I had an appointment, I got hormones. And you know, so I really didn't know much about, you know, what was the motivations behind what I was doing. And I moved along, that, that went up till 2015, you know, me living as a trans woman. And in late 2015, it all started falling apart. I was looking inward at my behavior and I'm going like, look, I'm, I'm really not a woman. I'm not a female. And that was kind of the birth of the non-binary thing. It became an escape hatch to get me out of uh, the female identity I'd become trapped in.
2: And then you ended up um, reclaiming um, male on your male identity on your on your id legally after that is that is that right
1: yeah that's another really tough journey because you know i I just uh, you you might as well say i jumped from one frying pan to another um you know the court case happened in june of 2016 and by november of 2016 it was already kind of falling apart for me But yet, you know, I had had the problem now compounded because I was literally internationally famous for becoming the first non-binary person, legally non-binary person. And once again, it was like, how do I get myself out of this mess? And that was an epic struggle to unwind. Um, Basically, uh, three psychiatric hospitalizations it took to unwind it. Um, A lot of. A lot of thoughts about suicide along the way, which you know, almost seemed like an easier solution than unwinding the mess and telling the truth about the whole thing and, and, and coming clean. Yeah. So, yeah. So late 2019, uh, with help, I formally reversed the court case and changed my name back to James Jameship.
0: People Sorry, seem I'm- to be
2: under the impression that, um, that detransition is, is an easy process. I mean, even we get asked, you know, because, because we question the ideology, people ask, well, why don't you just stop taking testosterone? And, and, and you know, people don't tend to realize that it's, it is a complicated process to reverse our decision to transition.
1: You know, um, one of the things I take issue with is the language. Um, and I hope this isn't offensive to anybody, but okay, so we this we've been given this set of language to how we frame our experiences, this um, that we transition, do we detransition and we retransition. But you know my question on that is it really true? I don't think it is. Um, yeah, you know, again, it, it makes it sound sound good selling it to the public, but did I really go from, being a natal male, to being a female, to being non-binary, to back to male, and now back under the female umbrella, was all of that real? You know, sure, I took hormones and I, and I cosmetically changed my body, but other than that, it's,
0: it's again, not real. What did, um, I mean, I agree with you entirely on all of that. My question is what, so, the, the non-binary designation, um, did that really have that much of an imp- Obviously it had a huge impact uh, on, on your mental health and whatnot, but was that more to do with the media uh, fiasco around it and how much attention was put on you? Because I can't imagine just having non-binary on your birth certificate, it's not really going to have a, a much of an impact on your life outside of the the, the, the media attention and how much uh, that that fallout from it. Could you talk, like, what, what was that uh, that caused such a, you know, so much turmoil for you. Again, because it, it, it wasn't
1: true. Um, so, we, you know, we should clarify about the X marker, which is what you get for, like, say, for example, on a driver's license. Okay. In, in reality, the X marker is supposed to mean sex not specified. So it's, so it's not really that you yeah. don't have a sex, but what happens in you know, the, 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 the gendered mind we don't think that, Um, you know, for me, it meant that I was like some hybrid intersex species where, you know, I had male biology and a uh, female gender identity and those two formed this, this non-binary being, well, none of that's true. So it, it, now, I mean, used properly, I I won't totally denounce the non-binary thing, But if you're twisting it around in your head and you're not viewing reality, then Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. it's harmful. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. And and, and that was the case with me. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was harmful. And I became this vehicle for the LGBT organizations to latch onto me and run with it. So even though, you know, I had correctly been, you know, not assigned male at birth, I was observed male at birth. Mm -hmm. I am biologically male. I have no known disorders of sexual development. You know, an endocr- endocrinologist has checked me out. So, you know, but yet here, LGBT organizations helped me to change my birth certificate to read as unknown instead of male. Again, you know, that, that that's very problematic when it's not true. And, and the proper you know, wording for that is it's called a legal fiction.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And yeah. You know, to my understanding, legal fictions aren't supposed to hurt anybody. Well, yeah, you know, it, it was hurting exactly. me. Yes, it was hurting me and my actions were also hurting other people, even more so when I'm under the female umbrella. I mean, at one point I had a female birth certificate as well
3: mm-hmm.
1: before you know, my birth certificate was originally changed from male to female, and then it was changed in the, to the unknown, aka the non-binary thing. Um, again, that that was a first in history in Washington D.C. Nobody, according to the documents, nobody in Washington D.C. had ever had a birth certificate with anything other than male or female. And here, you know, I I was used to break that barrier. In a and, that,
0: barrier. and that was meant to be a solution to the, the to the fraudulent F on your birth certificate, but it just it it didn't relieve that that disconnect with reality. It just created a whole new one. Right? Yes.
1: You know, I, I guess you can frame me in some twisted ways, like the Reimer boy. Are you all familiar with with David Reimer yeah. and John Money yeah. and all that? Well, yeah. it's like, you know, e- even if I want to believe because of the autogodophilia, no matter what you do to me and my alone in the dark moments, I still know that I'm a male.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. That's something that that we've all talked about. Obviously, we're we're all uh, female uh, uh female to male obviously male is the fictional part but you know we present as men um uh all of us like there's a, there's a big difference we find between the the auto-gynophilic experience of transgenderism and for us like I know personally I mean I definitely have dysphoria about the fact that I'm female but igno- but it's more like it's more like I never um I never found any uh any any relief in it didn't, it's hard to explain um the fact that I'm female has always remained consistent. I've never tried to challenge it. I mean, there's an M on my driver's license, Mm -hmm. um, but my birth certificate has always and will always uh, be an F. The way that I look at it is like, I, I can, I can change my, 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 current legal designation as male, because that's how I present in the world. But I can never change the fact that I was born female. I and mean, I can't change the fact that I am female, but I can't, I certainly can't change the fact that I was, you know, obviously observed female at the time of my birth. That is correct in my birth certificate. Um, so I'm not sure how, how you you guys feel about the whole birth certificate uh, designation change. That always felt to me like uh, just going, going too far. I know I was kind of pushed along that path, uh, you know, a decade ago when I transitioned, but it always seemed like this just doesn't seem this doesn't seem right. Um, I don't know what you guys' take on that at the,
2: at the time I thought it was awesome, you know, because at the <clears> time <throat> I had been ideologically captured and I think I really believed that in, in that some part of me or that in some way that I was, but
0: male, you also had an intersex condition as well.
2: Y- yeah. That, that complicates it for me for mm-hmm. sure. Um, mm-hmm. and I still find that confusing to kind you know, to sort of navigate th- that part of it. But, um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, that there is something. A bit, for me, it was like a complete erasure. You know, by putting it on your birth certificate, it almost felt like, okay, this is correcting the mistake that had been made at my birth. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is how it felt mm-hmm. at the time. Um. But yeah, I have, I've I've, mi- I've really, I really I've mixed feelings about it now.
0: Kenneth, you joined us uh, just after we started recording. Oh, Welcome. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey. what's your uh, what's your take on that?
3: Well, I think it creates a very, the compassion that led the doctors to have this legal fiction created has resulted in a very toxic environment um, where now you have people arguing that they're literally gone from being female to being male or male to being female. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I had all of my documentation switched over, but I think in Canada, there's actually an onus to have all your documentation, um, say the same thing. Like I know that once mm-hmm. you, once you begin a legal name change, you have a certain amount of time to complete it on all of your provincial and federal documentation and then i think you have a year to complete it on any like notify your bank notify your school your employer whatever right
0: it's a streamlined Um, process there
3: yes yes there's there there's a i forget what it's called but there's there's the requirement that all of it say the same thing so i don't know that a person could actually well who knows what it's like now but at one time I'm not sure a person could have legally left their birth certificate and change their other documentation. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure if people realize that or not, but yeah.
0: And Lisa, no, you you are going back to to um not identifying as, but presenting as. What is I know you think obviously retransition isn't exactly a, a, a real thing, but what is it that you are you are kind of where where are you now in this? Whew. I'm kind of screwed up in the medical
1: system right now. Because again, you know, I'm not actually retransitioning to anything. Not, nothing has actually changed. Um, but what's happened to me is okay, so when I quote, de you know, detransitioned back in, in 2019. What I didn't really expect to happen was, you know, it sounds good that I'm just gonna detransition and go back to, you know, quote, living as a male, you know, get off of hormones, just, you know, just knock the crap off and and end it all. But okay, so that that worked until the testosterone started coming back in my system. And once it did, the 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 paraphilia returned with it, you know, the desire to cross-dress, to, to act out sexually. Okay, But, you know, when I said that I had told my care team at the VA, which was a real fiasco that I was reclaiming my male identity, their first knee knee jerk reaction was to cut off my hormones. They just killed my hormone prescriptions, which was not my intent. I wanted Mm. to stay on hormones, keep my testosterone blocked. And because I was so high profile, it was almost kind of comical. They had to reach out to what they call the, the national LGBT coordinator at the VA and say, what are we going to do with SHOOP? SHOOP wants to detransition. You know, this isn't supposed to happen. So you know, they, they told him what to do with me. Um, it was comical. I went to Social Security and I, I had a letter from the doctor, you know, endocrinologist, stating that I was biologically male, and that I was reclaiming my male identity. Well, social security kicked me out. And they were like, you have to go through a gender transition to male in order to get your identity back to male. I mean, how much of a lie was that? I don't think people even think about that. You know, it sounds good on the way in. But what happens on the way out? Did I really transition back to male? That was totally untrue. I didn't do anything to transition back to male.
0: So so, in case we will. What were they requiring? Huh? What were they requiring? What do you mean that you had to transition back to male? What does that mean?
3: Mm -hmm.
0: It means I
1: had to go back to the endocrinologist and get like one of those state department letters stating that I had had appropriate therapy, hormone therapy, or surgeries, blah, 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 and and, and that I had transitioned back to male. So the, the endocrinologist had to perjure himself writing that letter because it wasn't true. I mean, uh-huh. how, how nutty is that? OK, so, I, you know, we got all that done and I was officially changed back to male. And here I am sitting there. You know, my gender dysphoria is back because I'm not on hormones. The autogynephilia is back. Um, you know, the bad sexual behavior is back. So I'm sitting around with literally like a shopping bag full of supplements trying to knock down my testosterone because they've cut my hormones off. I didn't want to go back to the hospital. Um, At one point, they actually put me in the psych ward because they thought I was going to kill myself. The VA like committed me using Florida's Baker Act. And by, what was it, New Year's Day of 2020, I had a blood clot in my leg from eating the supplements. So that was, that was kind of the, you know, the wake-up call for, for everybody that you know, they, they, they were gonna have to put me back on hormones, but we, well, we, had, a, we had another fight over that um, with my care team at the VA because the only way they would agree to put me back on hormones and block my testosterone was I had to claim that I was undergoing a gender transition. Again, you know, that I was being treated with trans, quote, transgender woman protocols. So, you know, after, after everything I had just went through, I was like, you know, fine. It's semantics. You can call it whatever you want. You know, just, just block my testosterone. And, you know, we did that. So, all right. So that, that got me through, through 2020, most of 2020, but then I moved in October and when I moved and I showed up at, at a new VA facility, um, the you know, for whatever reason, you know, blaming on COVID or back normal backlogs at the VA, I couldn't get my testosterone blocked again until um, March. Well, actually that didn't even happen in March. So I went from November to March without an appointment. And in the interim, it got into some really crazy behavior. Um, I was literally, are y'all familiar with estrogel? It's probably like testosterone gels except it's estrogen. I was reduced to, I was literally smearing estrogen on my testicles and, and also on, on my nipples because the gender dysphoria was so bad. And I got, finally got into seeing an endocrinologist in March, and we, we had a really nasty discussion. It went like um, back and forth, like, are you transitioning to female? And I'm like, no, that's not possible. I'm a male. I just want to be you know, treated under the transgender woman pro- protocols and I'm not, and I'm not making any other changes. And back and forth, we went like that. And afterwards she kicked me out of the office and said, I'll see you in four months. Hmm. And once again, I ended up in the psych ward ready to kill myself over the whole mess. Cause I mean, I was literally like ready to cut my testicles off. And when I got out of the psych ward, it kind of dawned on me that, you know, if I don't just go along with the program and, and, and claim, uh, claim that I'm, I'm transitioning and stay under the female umbrella, this is how my life is going to be. So that is how I've been reverted oh, okay. back to Lisa again.
2: Because at, at any time, what, was there any other option for managing your dysphoria presented to you other than just, you know, medicalizing and, and transitioning to, to female? Was that ever part of the conversation?
1: You know, it was um, literally medical malpractice in the psych ward, because here I am locked in there from, what was it, from April 16th to April 29th. And I had this little, like, team of psychiatrists that would come to visit me once a day and torture me. And they would ask me, like, you know, what is your identity? And I was saying, well, I'm male. And I, I was telling them that I was suffering from the paraphilia, autogonophilia and I was also suffering from gender dysphoria. And they equated that as long as I was telling them that I was a male, that it was impossible for me to have gender dysphoria and that I wasn't entitled to any care. I mean, they literally wrote in my medical records that, I mean, it's like I said, it's medical malpractice. One of them wrote in there that notably autogonophilia is not in the DSM, but patient keeps uh, claiming that they have this disorder. Autogynophilia, it's my knowledge, is listed in the DSM seven times. And then two supervising psychiatrists signed off on that note. And that was how the whole psych ward experience went, day after day. So, yeah. mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing, too, and I don't think many people were even aware of this. Um, so, okay, so autogynophilia is a paraphilia, sexual paraphilia. And to my understanding, there's literally like US government laws that prevent um, the treatment of paraphilias within, you know, you can't, in other words, you can't can't have insurance coverage to treat uh, a paraphilia. But on the other hand, you can get all the treatments you want for gender dysphoria with insurance coverage. And I think the the roots of that is basically, you know why the whole thing was changed from gender identity disorder to the uh, gender dysphoria thing.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay. So in that, in that sense, there is, there is a, a purpose to the fiction that, um, that this is just, you know, that autogynephilia doesn't exist. It, it's only a gender, it's only gender identity. Um, is that, is that what you're saying? No, I, what it, what I was saying is gender identity disorder
1: got morphed into, you know, rebranded as gender dysphoria in order to evade the insurance exclusion about treating paraphilias. You know, as Dr. Ann Lawrence says, autogonophilia is the, the paraphilia that underlies transvestism. Right. Right. So so technically, you know, that, that's an important part of this discussion. You know, it's this chicken and the egg thing. You know, what comes first? Okay, so in my case, we know that um, you know, pornography came first, and then that resulted. And transvestism and, and the autogonophilia, the, the desire to see myself in the image of a woman and have sex as a woman—so that that's that's paraphilic, okay. Mm-hmm. And then the end result of that was gender dysphoria, right? You know, the frustration that I, I had to turn myself into a woman to match that whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. right. So so if it had stayed at at the if no changes had have ever been made you know, there wouldn't be any insurance coverage for me to do anything about it. So Mm. the thing was rebranded into gender dysphoria. You know, it's no longer a paraphilia. We don't, we don't talk about that anymore. And it's just, they just treat me for gender dysphoria. That's, that's the trans narrative these days. Yeah. And it's
0: different Mm -hmm. for males. You know, the the whole experience is different for males, of course, than it is for females. Yeah. It's a completely different thing. I I was saying, um, you know, like I was, I, Talking about started talking about it recently. My experience with what we'd call autoandrophilia, which I think is, I, I think that only exists as as a is um, a solution to dysphoria. Doesn't cause dysphoria. It it um, you know the, the 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 initial the initial. Um, cause was gender. Well, I don't know what caused the gender dysphoria per se, but, but I had gender dysphoria all my life. And then once, once I got to an age of being, um, you know, sexually interested, um, that was funneled into, into uh, gay male sex, mm-hmm. because that didn't involve female anatomy, which I was repulsed by. Right. So, so it, it, it was the gender dysphoria led to, to it, um, having to express my sexuality or to access sexuality, I guess, in, uh, in a way that excluded, my female body, right? So, with with auto and with auto it seems that the gender dysphoria follows the, um, the the paraphilic attraction to the self as a exactly. woman, and so when that paraphilia is confronted with a with a physical body that contradicts it, that causes that causes gender dysphoria. So, yeah, definitely uh, chicken versus egg. Yeah,
1: I mean, the thing we have to realize, you know, it wasn't on my radar a couple of years ago. But again, the thing we have to realize in in this discussion about detransition, okay, say that I was a female who had been raped or say that I was a female who couldn't fit myself into society's version of what I was supposed to be as a female. And as a result, I did a, a, quote, gender transition to male for all the wrong reasons. And, you know, along the way, somehow develop gender dysphoria as well, or, or, or maybe not. I mean, I can't speak for females. Okay, Sue, so, but on the subject of detransition, you know, you could take a person like that and you could walk them back through their life and start peeling back the layers of that onion and get them to understand what happened to them. Okay, my situation as a male is totally different because, you know, we're dealing with a sexual paraphilia. You know the, the paraphilia is like the four most common ones. I think are pedophilia, transvestism, exhibitionism, things of things of that nature. Okay, and yeah, you know, I mean according to the you know the experts in the literature, you can't get rid of a paraphilia. So how how can a person like me technically detransition uh-huh. if the motivation for my transition in the first place is a sexual paraphilia? I mean, that's like telling a pedophile that they can't be a pedophile anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, I, you know, I can technically do it. You know, I take Lupron once again. And it's, it's again, you know, the dynamics of how these two tie together um, is priceless because you, know, you give a pedophile Lupron, Lupron, which is luprolide acetate, and, you know, they lose, lose their sexual desire and they can make, you know, rational decisions about their hate behavior and not offend anymore. It's the exact same thing for me. You give me Lupron, which I'm three months back into it. I'm already, you know, losing the sexual component of, of the female clothing. I could care less about screwing around with men and having them you know, validate me with a female. I'm essentially the same as the pedophile.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: You know, some people are just picking up on the point you made that when you were on the, the um, estrogen, that, that, the the paraphilic feelings started to dissipate, and when you went back on and and when you went off of the estrogen, those feelings started to to come up again. So some people might interpret that as well. The treatment was successful if it alleviated your gender dysphoria by transitioning to female. To, I mean, to use that language. So I mean, but in your mind, it it doesn't sound like you you felt that that was a successful treatment because it caused can you just unpack that a little bit? Like why, why, why wasn't for you that successful treatment if it did help your dysphoria?
1: Well, first off, I, I should say that you know, at high doses, you can do the same thing with estrogen that you can do with anti-androgen drugs to a male. You can totally kill off my sex drive if you give me enough, enough
0: um, anti-estrogen or anti-androgens or both. Like how they treat homosexual males, um, you know, Historically, yeah, like Alan Turing and
1: whatnot, right? That, yeah, I like mean, the right. The, you know, the drugs have changed, and well, of course, but you mm-hmm. know, historically, you're you're correct. I mean, I don't know what they were giving Alan, Alan Turing back then, but to speak to the other Aaron's point, okay, so it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, when we were earlier we were talking about how no matter what they did to me, I knew that I was a male, he, even though I wanted the female thing because of autogonophilia. Well we've got we're kind of back to the same problem again. Okay, we can if we frame this as gender dysphoria, we're lying about my underlying problem. My underlying problem is the paraphilia. So I want to be honest about that instead of, you know, falling under this gender even though I have gender dysphoria and even though I'm entitled to treatment for it, the underlying cause of my gender dysphoria is the paraphilia. So we need to be honest about that and be treating me for in my opinion,
3: for
2: the paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I just I just wanted to make sure that we were um, kind of closing that gap because some people might sort of hear what you're saying and, and interpret that as, you know, when you started the estrogen and, and claimed a female identity, that it, it did seem to resolve your gender dysphoria from... Do you know what I mean? So if we don't go deeper into that, some people might interpret that as, well, that's because the treatment was successful if it relieved your dysphoria. But I think what what I hear you saying is that it it was an indirect um in uh, an indirect resolution of your dysphoria because it wasn't really targeting the root cause. Am I yes. my understanding that correctly?
1: Yeah. To yeah. say it bluntly, it's putting lipstick on the pig. Yeah.
2: So now you're finding other ways of targeting the paraphilia paraphilia specifically without without interfering with your gender identity
1: yeah i mean i, I, I paraphilia being'm you know, back on lupron is totally back under control. Um, now as far as gender expression, you know I would rather run around and you know. Of course, that skirts and things like things of that nature, but I would rather you know, appearance-wise dress as a, you know, somewhat of a casual female, casual female clothing. So that presentation is just a good fit for my personality and, and who I am. But there's no disillusion anymore about you know, me being a male, what my problems are, you know, what's what needs to be done to be you know, to treat those problems and, and things of that nature.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah we've talked about about that theme quite a bit amongst us and and I'm in agreement with you I think the material reality for me is that I am female or you know with an intersex condition I still feel more comfortable mm-hmm. presenting as I do I've always had a I mean other than the beard I've I've presented this way forever like even as a kid I preferred to have short hair and so for me, it wasn't like the invention of a new persona of the way some people describe it. Cause I'm, I haven't, I don't behave or act or look much different other than the facial hair growth. Um, so I do feel more comfortable in my own body presenting this way, but, but you're right. that like, you know, there's layers to be peeled back, right? And, and my concern with, with this narrative, the gender transgender narrative that's going around I think it prevents people from peeling back those layers because you know, because that, that narrative is external to us, right? It's it's queer theory based, it's cultural based, it's politically motivated, it, it's not internal. And it, I think it when we identify with that external narrative, it prevents us from going inward and actually doing some of that work and, and finding some of the root causes for our dysphoria. And I think that root cause is probably different from person to person, potentially. There's probably mm-hmm. themes and trends amongst people, but I think. That's the work that I've done. And it's, it's sad that it gets interpreted as transphobic because it, just because I've gone in and done my internal work and resolved some things emotionally and, and recovered my mental health, that that somehow is seen as transphobic. It's like, well, wasn't wellness and mental health the whole point? Like, When did, when did we lose that plot? <laughs>
0: Isn't there? There's a distinct uh, confliction between what what normally or what often underlies uh, female gender dysphoria, and what underlies um, male gender dysphoria, which is m- more often than not, uh, autogynephilia, is causing that. That so. So it's it's distinctly different in that in that you know we could do work, we could you know you know uh, dig up you know our our early childhood experiences or our lives and kind of unpack how the the dysphoria was caused where it got us and but with like what, what Lisa was saying with autographophilia it's like you you can't you can only unpack it to the point that this is a paraphilia and then and you can't you can't unlearn or undo the mm-hmm. paraphilia you have to you have to manage it and, yeah. and that and that's why I keep, when all, all these conversations we have it seems like um as as contradictory as this is to like to the gender critical narrative or the the true trans or whatever narrative is to me, it seems like autogynophilia is probably the most appropriate kind of gender dysphoria to treat with medical transition. Um, is what I I keep going back to. I don't know what In your thoughts sense, are on yeah. that.
2: In the sense that it yeah. can't be changed.
0: Right. Right.
1: Right. But when we just tell people that we're just treating gender dysphoria and leaving out all the gory details of autogonophilia, that that's harmful to women. Mm-hmm. The people who actually yes. are are women, you know, identify as yeah. women and you know are not receptive to all of this stuff. You, know, you made an interesting and point.
3: Yeah. Okay. Well, then you end up with the situation that what's unfolding in Scotland right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you um, Aaron, you made an interesting point about um, you know, harking back to the childhood thing. Okay, so as a person who you know, suffers from autogonophilia, according to Dr. Blanchard, 75% of the, uh, you know, the, the trans population has autog- autogonophilia, you know, their AGB agp homosexuals and you know the other 25 percent is 25 uh percent um the what do you call them the homosexual transsexuals so three quarters of, of that population of blanchard's theories will are under the agp umbrella. so as a young child you know i didn't have any stereotypical feminine behavior i mean you, you, we can go back in the photos and there's you know there's pictures of me standing there in an army t-shirt with a tank on the front of it. You know, there's drawings of me on top of a tank with uh, holding a machine gun, you know, mowing down Germans, you know, you know me building you know, bicycle choppers as a kid and, my, you know, going fishing, going hunting. You know, my, my teenage years were mostly uh, revolved around building race cars. And then like all the other autogonophiles, well, not all of them, but I mean, I, I took... You know, went into the military. You know, we we go into the military. We become firefighters. We become you know, policemen. We become all these manly jobs. So we're, where I'm going with this is, you know, we're not intrinsically feminine whatsoever, like homosexual, transsexual, and that that becomes the, this identity problem. And, and I think at some future point, you know, this thing is going to fall apart, and that it's going to get some recognition. So how do I go into becoming a woman or allegedly becoming a woman because of my autogonophilia, this attraction to become one and then square that against my history. And the answer is, I mean, I've created a lot, lot of false memories now to, to make it work. Have have y'all ever seen the movie Blade Runner? The first one.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: They've got that scene in there where, where um, Deckard interviews, the replicant female, and Deckard is asking the replicant female about, about their childhood and they're, they're kind of going to pieces because there, there's no memory background of being a female and there's also no behaviors of being a female oh. so it's like I, I don't have none of this to prop me up when I went into the gender transition which creates this crisis so for example I start re- started reconstructing false memories of I can look back and say oh, wow, when I was five in the barber chair, I was screaming my head off. And that was because I was a girl and you were cutting my hair. And, I, and I've done that with a lot of things, which has been really harmful. I mean, it's to the point my head is so screwed up that I don't know which is which anymore. Yeah.
2: I think we all do that to some extent. I mean, that, that seems pretty, maybe not all, but I mean, that seems pretty common, even amongst the, the homosexual, transsexuals of rewriting Rewriting the past, rewriting our history, and you know, to kind of um, recast ourselves as well. I, w- I was just a boy all along, and I you mean, know, I would tell people that I played hockey instead of ringette, you know. For example, like always, always editing, you know, details of our lives, and it's exhausting to have to do that all the time. It's like being a closet okay. case gay person, right? That that it's exhausting being in the closet because you're having to always edit every time you, you know if someone's talking about their childhood or whatever in order for you to participate socially in those conversations we have to quickly on the spot always be editing our own stories
1: right and that false memory thing is a real problem <laughs> i mean if if psychiatry finally recognized it as a problem with the sexual abuse how come they're unwilling to recognize it with the gender abuse
3: mm
2: mm-hmm. yeah. no we've been um I mean, as an organization, you know, and as, a, as an alliance, we've we've received a lot of support, I would say probably about 90% support, but we have had some backlash. And most of the backlash is because of the fact that that we do agree that there are different types of dysphoria, you know, in, including um, AGP and, and the homosexual type mm-hmm. um, and the you know, DSD type as well. Um, and, but it, it seems So that, I mean, it's, it seems to be something that it makes people pretty angry, right? Even just mentioning AGP and saying, well, I believe that exists. um, People kind of jump to, well, that's transphobic. You're saying we're all, we're all perverts or we're all, you know, just fetishists that are lying and manipulating. And that, that's not never been our, our intention. You know, it's my, my intention, um, what motivates me mostly is that what is we need to, to do what's right for the kids. I mean, I would rather not be coming out and telling my story and and receiving backlash and stuff. But when I look at at all the kids, I mean, even taking ROGD out of the picture, I mean, I I do think that is real, but taking that out Mm -hmm. of the picture and even just looking at the two main types that Blanchard identified, most of the kids are probably going to be that homosexual subtype because AGP doesn't develop until later in life. Right. I mean, you have to have a, a, a sex drive in order to, to develop a paraphilia. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of these kids I'm guessing, you know, are either ROGD or have the homosexual subtype. And we know that most of the homosexual subtype kids desist by the time they reach adulthood, you know, that roughly 80% of them end up resolving the gender dysphoria and just becoming happy, well-adjusted gay and lesbian kids. But I'm under the impression that, you know, by labeling it all as just trans, it's all just the same. There's no subtypes. It's all, you know, it's saying we're all just trans. It's all just gender dysphoria. We all have the same needs. That's my concern is that if, if that's our narrative, we're not actually serving the needs of each individual kid that comes to clinics saying I've got gender dysphoria and I I'm under the impression that a lot of this push to medicalize earlier and earlier and earlier um, you know, it, it probably works best for those with, with AGP in the sense of passing, because you mentioned, you know, a lot of people with AGP weren't intrinsically very feminine as children. And, and so passing mm-hmm. later in life, I think is, is the primary obstacle that, when they want to transition to female that they face is, well, now I've, I've, I've masculinized and that can't be undone without major medical intervention. So wouldn't it be nice if I could have transitioned prior to puberty and and onward, but, but that goal though, it serves perhaps the AGP agenda quite well in terms of passing later in life, it actually is doing a harm to all the other types of gender dysphoria because what about all those kids that would have just turned into happy, well adjusted gay and lesbian kids if they had been given the opportunity to go through puberty and, and work all of that out for themselves? So it's, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm explaining that right, but the, the rush to medicalize earlier and earlier is actually probably transitioning a lot of gay and lesbian kids so that those with AGP can pass better as female later in life.
0: And most of the activists seem to be of the autogonophilic type, not the homosexual, transsexual type. Mm-hmm. You know so my,
2: my intent isn't to you know, kind of shame those with AGP. Like, I want to acknowledge it so that people like yourself, mm-hmm. Lisa, can actually get the support and help that, that you're looking for. Um, but also to protect those that don't, that have the other types of gender dysphoria to make sure that they're receiving the most appropriate treatment for their type. Of, so when we don't, when we call it all trans, we're not individualizing care for you know for each person and and you know because i imagine we have different needs with different types of dysphoria
1: see i i would do something totally different with what you're saying okay so when we look at blanchard stats that for for the natal males that that go under the trans umbrella okay so the, the 75% agp and the 25% homosexual transsexual those stats theoretically aren't going to change now, what has changed is the availability of knowledge. You know, like I was talking about how earlier that I managed to go through my childhood and then I managed to go through the military and I was fine until I was exposed to the ideology. So nowadays we're exposing kids you know, at the earliest possible ages. Okay, so A-G-B, AGP can theoretically be triggered by puberty. Okay, so now we're talking about you know, males who are 12 to 13 years old you know, who are AGP and they're just getting rubber stamped with gender dysphoria. You know, can you see a problem here? So they, they don't, so I'll expand on that. So the way I see the problem is they are just getting rubber stamped with gender dysphoria instead of getting a psychological evaluation that's unpacking what's going on.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah. okay. So now the harm in that is, Okay. So I say I was one of them, you know, here I am 14, 15 years old. I've already went through puberty and I just said, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a female. I'm really a female. And then I go down into the high school track and say, I'm going to be on the female team. And I start trashing the female runners with my male biology, um, which is probably exactly what is occur- occurring up in Connecticut. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that situation. Um, and and how how is that fair to females? And it's also not fair to me because okay, you rubber stamped me with gender dysphoria instead of like unpacking what was going on and teaching me that I have a paraphilia and giving me alternate options to deal with the paraphilia instead of just rushing me into a gender transition.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I, and I would say that would that that point is probably true, regardless of what kind of gender dysphoria people have is nobody's kind of sitting down with us and explaining what that really means. Mm-hmm. Right. Whether it's AGP or the homosexual subtype or you know, whatever, but ha- whatever it was that led us to the gender dysphoria. None of us are getting that evidence based reality based information. So mm-hmm. that and that because people say, well, you're denying people the agency of doing what they want with their bodies, but I see it very differently. You're denying us agency to make choices with our lives because you're not providing us with actual reality-based information.
1: Right. Yes. So if, if, if I was in that scenario, I wouldn't have a daughter today because, you know, I would have said, okay, well, mm-hmm. I'm really female. You know, the best thing to do with me is, you know, chemically castrate me and then give give me the the bottom surgery when I hit 18 or whatever age I can get away with getting it. And then I would have went into all that without even knowing what was going on. I would have destroyed my reproductive system rather than saying, okay, well, this, you know, I have this problem. You know, these are my options to treat it. You know, maybe I can have somewhat of a normal life have a family and do all those sorts of things. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm going back to what you were saying that that um, you weren't particularly feminine uh, as a child and most autogynophiles are not just not just not feminine it seems to be like almost hyper masculine typically quite masculine in their interests and behaviors and whatnot um, so going back to the military thing um, it seems that that I, I had this theory and I think you've, you've you've demonstrated it to be incorrect but I had this theory that a lot of um, people with AGP uh, choose a career such as the military because it requires full-time, it basically doesn't allow you to slip into that female um, presentation, that female behavior. Um, you, you, it kind of forces one to be, to use Eddie Izzard's verbiage, in boy mode all the time. Um, do, do, you, do you not think there's any validity to that? Or do you think it is just a, just a sense of, of, of innately having very masculine career interests?
1: I think in my case, it challenges the whole theory. Because it, it sounds really good that I'm going into the military to, you know, that's my, my flight into hyper, hyper masculinity to you know, protect me from, from the gender dysphoria and all that stuff. Well, I think going back to what I said earlier, if I didn't know any of that existed and I wasn't experiencing any of those problems at the time because I was unexposed to the ideology, right. how can that be true? Right, that's what I
0: meant. You kind of you mm-hmm. kind of contradicted that theory that I had developed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, no, it's not just you.
1: I mean, there's there's lots of articles written by you know researchers to to push these theories to to cover up the the paraphilic behavior and make make it sound more normal.
0: Yeah. Another thing that I have been uh, wondering about is um, so we know that say 75 percent um, of of female to ma- male to female transitioners. Are autogenophilic. Um How how prevalent do you think that? I mean, you've done a lot of research into this. How how prevalent do you think uh, that particular paraphilia is in the male population writ large, regardless of those who seek transition? I think a significant number are now seeking transition with the gender ideology inundation and in the and um, the and the medical availability of it. But um, but like, do do you, do you think? Uh, obviously, you're saying that for yourself, porn triggered it. Um, it seems to be um, that could be a pretty common case nowadays with the availability of porn as well. But um, how, how common do you think autogynephilia is in the, in the male population at large, regardless of transgender identification? I don't think I'm qualified
1: to answer that. Okay. Um, and yeah, not, not, yeah, without appropriate studies, um, don't, yeah, it, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to say that. But, but it, it is a problem. And you, you did touch on something that's really an issue now, which is kind of, um, boy, what do we call this thing? The, the sissy ideology? Do y'all have any knowledge about specification?
0: that? Specification?
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's becoming, uh, the website Women Are Human did a fantastic article on that, but that's becoming a, a real problem for young males. So they're getting exposure to pornography and especially if they've got developmental issues or they've got self-esteem issues, you know, they're, they're not the kind of people. I was always extremely successful with women. So you know, people who aren't successful with women, you know, like I said, and, and you give them you know, a host of reasons of why you know, they could start you know, just chunking away at, at their, their maleness, manhood, whatever you wanna call it, and come up with ultimately that they're, they're really females. And they're going down that pathway through the sysification route. Um, it's it's almost like bordering the grooming kind of thing.
2: Hmm. I met a guy many years ago. You reminded me of him and he, he suffered from extreme anxiety to the point where it really impaired his ability to function in life because he was so afraid of making a wrong decision that he just didn't want to make any decisions. But in his mind he didn't almost it's almost like he didn't register that he had anxiety but he in, he interpreted that as well i'm just a submissive and i need a dominant to make all the decisions for me so he turned that into a sexual identity um that then became a barrier for him not to actually treat the anxiety but he had hired he was spending like thousands and thousands of dollars online getting you know these pr- professional Uh, female dominatrix to make all his life decisions for him because he was too anxious to make a decision. And imagine if that ideology caught on rather, rather than the gender dysphoria one, if, if, you know, we, if we started to create this worldview of we're all just either dominant or submissive and we don't want to want to make decisions. It's because we need a dominant to make all our decisions. I mean, it's, it's kind of a parallel in a way like, yeah. yeah, that we could just substitute, you know, our, our, you know, mental health problems for and find a an external solution to that and call that an identity because he was very fixed in that identity. They, no, I'm not anxious. I'm just a submissive,
1: yeah, the some of the videos on websites like um x videos and things in X hamster, things of that nature, I mean, they're very telling of how problematic the uh, sciification ideology is because it, it, it's like, Back to what you said, it, it's kind of a convergence of uh, BDSM and then sissification. So you you have males that are, are taking these so-called you know beta males and sissifying them, but they're also stepping up the game and putting them on hormones. You know they're literally destroying their, their reproductive systems. And to, have y'all ever heard of a sissigasm? No. Yeah, I. This is embarrassing to admit, but I mean I I've actually gotten into this problem myself because I've went down that rabbit hole. So a sissy is when you become trained to only be able to orgasm through rectal stimulation of your prostate. And they they also put these males into chastity devices. And so the only sexual relief they're allowed to have is is through prostate stimulation. And there's a really fascinating article on that. Um, It was actually a, a study of, of, about a man who who was uh trained himself to become that way with one of the aneros prostate tilts, so it gets into the brain is actually plastic and, and can be programmed to to think a certain way and continue to act a certain way yeah
2: mm-hmm. and then the, I guess the other rabbit hole is uh, is those that have a, a sexual fetish for for mutilating their genitals, and we we really have no idea how many people are getting um, you know, the, the gender, what's called the gender affirmation surgery, you know, for that reason.
1: Yeah, the, um, I believe it was the, the Daily Beast just did a, a pretty big article. And I, I think it's it's under the umbrella of cutting. Is that correct? Yeah. Cutters, is it, cutters is what they call the guys who, um, who gave unofficial sex changes.
3: Yeah, wow. so. That would I explain so. the absolute inability of some people to do post-care after surgery.
0: What do you mean? Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. Some people don't take care of their... Like, after they've had genital surgery, they don't do any of the post-operative care. They end up with major complications. The vaginoplasty falls out. Um, yeah. It's or major internal infections like they they they're all on board they get the surgery and then after the surgery has been done they totally disassociate from doing any of the care that's necessary to address the wound and the healing and the
1: see I I think I can solve solve that riddle for you about why that, you know, I can give you a very good potential reason about exactly why that's occurring. Okay. So as long as I have testosterone in my system, and this just isn't me, this is, this seems to be a phenomenon with the AGPs in general, we are, you know, we're motivated to chase things like what exactly what you're talking about. We have yeah. this image in our mind, you know, one of Blanchard's types of autogynephilia, he breaks it down in, into four subsets as we, we you know we can be fixated on say for example having a vagina and then once our testosterone is cut off it that vagina is meaningless. so yeah it's not it's not a good idea to you know that sort of person shouldn't be getting a, a quote sex change surgery whatever you, you know, whatever you want to call the thing gender confirmation surgery yeah because as soon as they get it and the testosterones cut off the sexual desire to be a woman and have a vagina is cut off. Why would they take care of it? And then you also have to throw in, I mean, the trans population is, is extremely prone to having mental health things, issues, um, you know, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorders, you know, depression problems. So you know, the people with depression and all those sorts of things, they go into these depressed modes and they don't have any physical energy to actually maintain their bodies.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You've written a bit about, about different types of, of AGP. Do you mind kind of explaining what some of those different, different types are?
1: This is where we really get down the rabbit hole. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay.
1: So I've got these on my website and my breaks it down. Is the, so the first type is what they call physiologic autogonophilia. And Blanchard gives the, the example of um, you know, these are males who are sexually excited by, by being what what's called pregnancy transvestites. They're also excited by things like um, lact you know lactating, breastfeeding, and even menstruating. Um, so I actually have all four types of Blanchard's autogonophilia. So under that first type, the thing that plagues me is I've always been extremely sexually excited about um, inducing lactation. Yeah, when I look back, um, before I had this self-awareness about my issues, I I can look back with shame at the photos of of me using an electric uh, breast pump on on my breast, trying to stimulate lactation. And it's really a a shameful thing to look back on. And getting into how uneducated the medical establishment is, at one point, while I was in Portland, um, this was after the non-binary sex change. I, you know, wrote my doctors, and I actually asked them for for a drug called I believe it's called Dom Peridone, to you know get me to uh, cause lactation. And because there's no training on on you know, with stuff about you know, teaching these doctors and these therapists about what Blanchard's theories are. This went right over their head that here I am asking for a drug to induce lactation when it was classic autogonophilia. That's how problematic that is.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this, the second type is called behavioral autogonophilia. And these are, you know, just like it sounds. Um, you do things to, you get sexual pleasure from imitating females. You know, some, some of the examples are, you know, People actually have males actually have masturbation fannies these you know where they were knitting in the company of other women or going to the hairdresser or getting your nails done is actually a um, you know, a sexual experience. The third type is when you get into the, the autogonophilic, uh, it's called anatomic autogonophilia and this is where you start wanting to, take on female body parts. Um, Let's see here what Blanchard said on that one. This is the aroused by the thought of having a woman's body or parts of a woman's body, such as breast. This is a really interesting part of of my trajectory because when I started cross-dressing and I started screwing around with men, then I found out I could get fake breast forms. So I became obsessed with having fake breast forms. And then after the experience, you know, I was content with taking them off, putting them in the closet. And you know, until the next sexual experience, it wasn't a big deal that I didn't have breasts. But then after learning that I, I could take hormones you know, down the road, learning that, I suddenly became obsessed with, with wanting breasts um, because of the hormones. And of course, I took hormones to, to get the breasts. So there's you know, the same thing with our earlier conversation about you know, getting the fake vagina. Yeah, I, fortunately, that hasn't been my issue, but that's, that's one of the reasons why people do it. And then the fourth type is just what classic transvestic autogonophilia, And that's getting sexual pleasure from, of course, you know, cross-dressing, wearing female clothing. You know, one of the examples Blancher gives, and, I, and I'll validate it as being true, is you know, when my wife puts her bra on in the morning, she's just putting her bra on. If I've got testosterone in my system, it's a sexual experience for me. I'm capable of getting an erection just by the mere act of getting dressed.
0: Yeah, that's how problematic all that is. Do you do you think is it anatomical uh, uh, autogynephilia? Is that the kind that can cause actual gender dysphoria, or can they all lead to that? Or do you have any thoughts on that? I, I would rate that as the number one cause
1: because that that collision of me wanting to have breast and not having breast, and was able to induce the gender dysphoria. Yeah. So it's, it's worthy of treatment, but again, it goes back to, we have to be honest about what we're doing, you know, why the treatment is occurring rather than, than passing me off as something that I'm not.
2: So otherwise I imagine the drive would be to change your body. Mm-hmm right? If, if, that's, if that's the nature of the paraphilia is, is to want breasts and want, you know, a vagina and it, that it, there must be a really strong drive then to, to medically transition if, if that's the nature of the paraphilia.
1: Yeah, well, that brings up an interesting point too. I mean, well, first I would say, I would frame it as a progressive disease, that it just keeps escalating in steps but the, then Blanchard gets into, I think he uses the term pair bonding. And what that means, I think the way he explains it is, like, say, for example, that I've been married to my wife for over three decades. So even if we get to the point where we don't love each other anymore, there's a good probability that we'll just stick together because we've we've pair bonded and we've been, been together so long that it doesn't make any sense for us to separate. And According to what I understand of what Blanchard says, the same thing happens to me with the autogynephilia, which probably explains why I'm still wearing women's clothing, even though there's no longer any sexual arousal in the thing. I've gotten so used to my alter ego, Lisa, that um, Lisa has just become a part of me. So even though there's no sexual component of Lisa with me chemically castrated, Lisa still exists. There's another, I believe he's a psychologist named T. Buckner, and he wrote a really good document. Um, it's called The Transvestic Career Path. And he, has, he lays out these steps of, of how a person becomes a transvestite. And one of the final steps is the, the formation of, of the alter ego of the female personality. It becomes almost like a permanent uh, portion of the person's persona which you know, the name Lisa was actually my very first transvestite um, alter ego name. So I, I have reverted back to it.
0: So with, um, obviously you're, you're of a camp that, that any, um, that SRS, would you say SRS for, um, for, uh, for people with, with the autogynephilic um, dysphoria, you, you, you were uh, basically no question that's, um, that's medical malpractice, correct? that's a slippery slope i
1: i think it should basically be well okay first when you, when people are adults they have you know, the right to make medical decisions so you have that quandary yeah then then the, the other part of it i mean I, I think it should be avoided at all costs mm-hmm. but there's going to be some folks apparently who like like me i you give me Lupron, and I seem to be okay. You know, it, it stops the thing. But what do you do with the folks where it doesn't stop the thing? And I think that's what the, the kinds of people that, that folks like Blanchard are, are basically supporting, saying, you know, hey, we've tried everything else. You know, They're adults. They get to do what they want. Now, again, the problem is recognizing them as females in doing that. And when they start using the surgery to say, "Hey, I'm really a woman," instead of uh, you know me fixing a paraphilia here, that's very problematic, and I don't agree with that.
2: I kind of wonder about the endpoint too. So, let's say someone had the anatomical AGP, and they did go through all of the medicalization, and so now they have the breasts that they that they desired. Let's say and. It, I mean, does, does the age, does the nature of the paraphilia shift then? Or, or, I mean, what, what am I trying to say? So if someone has, has the breasts and that's arousing for them, um, does, does that, does that satisfy the AGP or, or is it like constantly distracting and you're aroused in, in, you know, at inappropriate times like what is what is the uh the lived reality of that of that have you know having reached that end point of of a transition you
1: know i i can only answer for my it's what's well, it's appropriate for me to only answer for myself sure. about what my experience with that is okay so chemically castrated the sexual component is mainly gone um you know i don't like go off and you know, masturbate because I have breasts now. You know, there's no desire to do any of that. But on the other hand, if I get up in the morning and walk in the bathroom naked, I look in the mirror and see breasts and you know, there's, there's immense joy over that I have breasts. And you know, another one of those things, the sexologist like Blanchard has pointed out is like a regular natal female doesn't run around, you know, oftentimes fondling her own breast and getting sexual pleasure by fondling her own breast. But we AGPs, me, are very prone to doing that, yeah. So there, there's still sort of a, a sexual component to it, even though the sex drive has been cut off. That you know we got what we wanted.
0: It's like, for me it's always been kind of helpful to think of it as because. Um, uh, I've never really understood paraphilias. Um, I think that's kind of a female thing in general. It doesn't really make sense to me. I'm, I can't really rationalize it, but it makes sense to me to think of it as uh, as basically um, uh, inverted heterosexuality. So I think of it as like a, a sexual a sexual orientation is how I've always been able to conceptualize um, autogynophilia which also makes sense in my in my brain as far as why. Um, uh, HRT, why taking test? Why, why inhibiting your testosterone, taking estrogen, uh, doesn't completely eradicate it. Um, it becomes, it, it's like, cause the, the orientation remains, you're still attracted to yourself as a woman. It's just the, the sexual component to that is, is diminished, but it's not gone. Just like it would be for a sexual orientation. You know, like if, if you gave a homosexual, uh, as you know, homosexual man, estrogen, like he's still going to be gay. He's just going to have much less desire to act on those feelings that makes sense. That's
2: helpful. And that yeah, that that actually I think speaks to what I was asking about because I I just wondered because I have heard some people say that once they have AGP so they whether they knew it was that or not but they had that sexual component and then they transitioned and now that sexual component isn't there and and for them they had this disappointment almost. It's like, well, th- this was this was all about that sexual experience and now oops, now, now I don't even have a sex drive and and I, so you don't I don't hear that talked about openly very much but I can imagine that happening, but, but you're, you're right, Aaron, that they, they would still have that orientation, the sexual orientation, just not the sex drive, but it, you know, it would, I don't think if we don't have a reality-based way of understanding this, I, I can see how people could kind of arrive at the, at the point of feeling almost disappointed. It's like, I, well, I was after this, you know, amazing right. sexual experience. And, and, and now that's been destroyed by the fact that I don't have a sex drive. Not a person, not, not everyone's going to feel that, but I have heard that expressed. By some
1: you you two said so many things well i don't think i can even remember to get them all okay now to to do yours first okay so this isn't a pleasant experience with the sexual excitement so where, where i'm going to go with this you know another one of the things blanchard's pointed out is the um, the transvestites the crossdressers they go through this endless cycle called binge and purge. So, We go out and we load our closet up with high heels and dresses and stockings and all wigs and all breast forms and all this stuff. And we go, you know, months, years, or whatever, going through that. And then we crash and burn and shame and we discard it all, Hmm. which is very expensive to do. I'd like to have all my money back. And, and, And we just repeat this torturous cycle over and over. So I'm to the point where, like, folks you're talking about are like, okay, so they went through this alleged gender transition. You know, they hopefully got the body they were seeking. And then they're going like, oh, I don't have a sex drive anymore. Well, the, the route I'm going with this is like, that sex drive was my problem to begin with. And if I have that sex drive, I'm gonna go through that endless torturous cycle of, of you know, binging and purging and shame and all that. So it's better just the, the end result is that we um my sex drive is cut off, you know I'm in the body I was fantasizing about, and it's all over with that's a that's a much better outcome mm-hmm. than, than, than the cycle of torture <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
2: that's really helpful to hear to hear it that way because I, I think when we when it's not our experience it's, it, it's easy to kind of misunderstand some of the the fine details of it. So I think a lot of people when they hear about AGP they they think of it as chasing the sexual fantasy Um, so it sounds sounds like a fun thing but you're not describing it as a fun experience at all
1: no it's torturous and when once you've been through that cycle numerous times and 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 you realize what you're doing yeah it's just like give me the genital lobotomy just make, make it end yeah and that's you know we're not being truthful about that You know, once again, we're just framing the whole thing as as gender dysphoria and sweeping it under the rug and and leaving out all those nasty details of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Now, the other Aaron touched on the other problem with what's going on, this stuff about calling um, paraphilia's sexual orientations. Again, that's just to me, it's just more flim flam language of hiding bad behavior and Uh and making it sound, um, you know, legitimizing it, if if you will. Uh So, you know, here, here, here's a really fun one. So, all right, so autogonophilia, and, and I would say it's been done to, you know, at, after all the uproar of autogonophilia, it started getting toned down. Well, we'll just call it a sexual orientation instead. Well, you know, now we're also calling pedophilia sexual orientation. Yeah. Okay. You know, these things are really paraphilias, not sexual orientations. Okay, so now getting into the harm thing. Okay, so I, I don't agree with people losing their jobs because of their, their what is actually a sexual orientation, or because they want to go to work in a certain you know, certain type of clothing. If I'm a male and I want to go to work dressed as a female, I shouldn't get fired about that. But when we when we go to the Supreme Court and we make it illegal to fire somebody because of a sexual orientation. And we're also calling pedophilia a sexual orientation. Is it right that we can no longer file, you know, get rid of a pedophile from employment? Yeah, know, yeah. If, if a daycare is, at, it turns out that they've got a pedophile running around and pedophilia is a sexual orientation. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to point out the problems we have here.
0: I, I guess for, for- and I don't know, and you've obviously kind of catalog- laid it out as quite a problem, uh, autogynophilia, that is. So I guess I was under the impression um, that I wouldn't equate it to because it seems like um, uh, autogynophilia doesn't, doesn't cause any harm. But you're obviously saying, no, it, it absolutely uh, is, is, is quite harmful and not, not as, um, uh, you know, not, not a sexual orientation in that way. So, yeah, I guess I was making the leap to, to pedophilia because I see a, a significant obvious harm to that. Uh, paraphilia, whereas um, I guess I thought of otogenophilia as just like a private, you know, fantasy that can be acted out with no harm to anyone. Um,
3: uh, so, you and know, obviously,
0: strange. obviously separate to colonizing women's spaces. That's obviously a no-no all that's, around. That's but, yeah. Right. 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 In, in, indulging
1: my paraphilia, forcing you to indulge my paraphilia is harm. There, there's no way around that. So yeah, it's it's not this nice little harmless thing with gender dysphoria like we're, we're trying, like other folks are trying to prove, they sweep it under the rug and portray it. No, not the case at all. Yeah. And then look at the behaviors we just went through under Blanchard's for substance. You know, I hear I am you know with test again with testosterone. You know, I'm prone to doing things like going out and buying a breast pump and pumping my breast and doing that as a sexual fetish is it fair for me to call myself a female and then, you know, put myself in the women's bathroom with that sort of sexual behavior? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many different avenues where, where this stuff is wrong that I, I just don't want to participate. You know, I just want to be honest about what my problems are. I want to be honest about how they affect females and then get the treatment to you know resolve them in the least harmful manner. And it's very hard to do that. Like I said, I can just say I've got gender dysphoria and get all the care I want. The minute I say I've got a paraphilia, nobody wants to touch me.
2: It must be hard to find clinicians that even acknowledge that AGP exists, let alone how to, how to actually help. Are you, are you finding any support? No.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the example I gave out of my VA medical records where the psychiatrist was wrote, wrote in there that autogonophilia doesn't exist. I mean, how, how do I deal with a mental health industry <laughs> that's operating on that kind of mindset? Or if they do know it exists, then they're going to claim that it's, it's not a valid thing.
0: And they're kind of forcing you to live under this delusion that you're female um, in, order to, in order to treat you. Like, like you were saying that day in and day out saying, oh, you're still a male, then you're not trans. Um, it's like I I encounter that obviously with just arguments people are like oh if you say you're female you may as well detransition and that's infuriating enough having it's like I don't have to be ideologically captured or live under a delusion in order to treat my dysphoria but it's basically like you you were in a a literal psych ward being forced to do that I can't even uh, fathom
1: yeah I mean I can remember sitting there in tears explaining to them you know that I didn't like my body that you know the hair growing on me again, felt like I was suffocating and explaining all those different types of, you know, how the dysphoria was affecting me. And they just, they had blinders on. They were going, well, you know, as long as you're a male, you can't possibly have gender dysphoria and we're not treating you. Yeah, it was, it was the most horrible experience that, that you can imagine to be treated like that. At one point I just broke down said look I want the treatment but I don't want the delusion and you know they weren't swayed by none of that.
2: Yeah Yeah, it's frustrating. I mean we're all experiencing that but you know what Aaron just mentioned of you know because because gender dysphoria is completely separate from the gender ideology. You know there were transsexual people long before there was queer theory and I experienced dysphoria long before I ever learned queer theory in the early 90s. Um, but people have com- so completely understood the trans experience through queer theory that they, they can't even separate the two anymore. So it, it's, it's completely confusing for people now when, when you just look at gender dysphoria without that lens of queer theory that that, that gets interpreted as, as transphobic. Um, because, because for them, like trans is queer theory that they, they, they can't understand what gender dysphoria even means without, without queer theory these days. And it, it, it's created blinders that I, I don't know how we ever remove those. Like even I posted on Twitter recently, like, how would we even do something like watchful waiting with the kids in this, in this age of ideological capture, you know, when the kids are learning that your experiences means that you are trans. I mean, that's not watchful waiting anymore. We're, we're leading them down a path.
1: To what extent would you agree that the, the medical system itself has created gender dysphoria? Okay, so I, I'll give you a couple yeah. of examples. You know, going back in history, as you were talking about, if there, was no, there were no synthetic hormones and there were no surgeries, I mean, it would be something like, I can't drink alcohol until I'm 21. So yeah, you know, not available. It's not, a, why, why would I have any dysphoria over something I can't have? Uh-huh. Or you know, if you were, you know, Stork dropped you on a desert Island, a gloved hand reached out of a medical out of a metal box and, and raised you until you were able to sustain yourself. And yeah. there was no other people, no other you know, no human interaction whatsoever. How would you have gender dysphoria? It's the ideology mm-hmm. and the medical treatments that are fueling it, in, in my opinion. Does that make any sense?
2: It, it does. And I think, I mean, in my case, I don't think the medical industry created my dysphoria because I definitely experienced intense dysphoria as a child. And I grew up in an isolated farming community, no contact with the gay and lesbian community, no con I didn't even know that that medically transitioning was even a thing. That just wasn't on my radar. But I had dysphoria to an extent where I really believed in some way that I was a boy. I didn't know I had an intersex condition then either. So it was beyond just being a tomboy. I mean I, I looked at other boys and saw that they were swimming with no shirt on and a pair of trunks. So I whipped my shirt off and and insisted on swimming with just a pair of shorts on. So it was very much an an extreme, but it never, it never crossed my mind to get a sex change until I learned that that was a thing, right? So it was still, <laughs> even though I had very intense legitimate dysphoria, I would still say I'm a victim of ideological capture because prior to that, I was finding ways of integrating my dysphoria into a lesbian identity and, and did that quite successfully and, and quite happily until I started learning about, well, you know the ideology, and that if you had these feelings, well, no, you're not actually gay; you're actually a trans person. So we, we we've invented this idea that there is a separate category of personhood called a trans person that now needs rights and medical interventions, and you know this whole industry now created for it. So that part, of the medical industry, is absolutely created. So trans is created, yeah, by yeah. by the medical industry, yes.
0: yeah, yeah. I would say I always had. Oh, sorry. Go on, Kenneth. I was going to
3: say it's also created the social sexualities where a person's sexual orientation now goes based on gender identities of the individuals involved and has nothing to do with the underlying biological realities. Yeah.
2: What I felt I needed kind of in hindsight is I needed someone to kind of explain to me what the what the my gender dysphoria meant, you know, in reality-based terms. All I needed was information because the experience itself I had no way of understanding and attaching meaning to. And I it, so it's almost like the creates this vacuum in me where I, I need it to make sense in some ways. So any narrative that kind of sounds plausible, it's so easy to grab a hold that, okay, that's the explanation that I've been waiting for, you know, because nobody explained to me, well. It's quite, you know, that a lot of gay and lesbian people have this kind of dysphoria or a lot, you know, a lot of people with the type of intersex condition you had experienced this. Like, I needed a way of making sense of it. Um, if someone had just said to me, hey, you know what, this, you're either feeling this because you just happen to be one of these, one of these uh, lesbians that experienced dysphoria and, and or, you know, that you have an intersex condition and this is what it means. I think that would have satisfied my need to make sense of it without having to do any, anything else, no medical Mm. interventions or anything. So it wasn't until I grabbed a hold of that explanation of it's because you are trans. And if you are trans, that, that's what drove me to then transition. It's like, well, if I am, if I am actually trans and that means I am a man in some way, then I have to transition. I can, it's created this sense of urgency that I can't possibly be trans and not and not do an intervention so it so medically transitioning almost became a, a compulsion or an addiction for me that I need to do this I can't it, may, it created this dissatisfaction with with my own body because I was being told by that narrative you are actually a man trapped in a woman's body or, or however that narrative goes but until I learned that narrative I didn't feel any drive or compulsion at all to change my body.
1: What about the Mm. frequent thing of, um, the feeling different? So in in your case, you obviously felt different from other females growing Mm -hmm. up. So where I'm going with that is how much of a component is that feeling different thing as a driver? And then how much of a problem is that feeling different thing? a, um, sort of like a, perception disorder Um, because you know you you frequently hear people trans people trans identifying people saying well you know i feel like a girl or i feel like a boy Mm -hmm. or i feel like a man and at my level of knowledge now i could never be a therapist because i i would just be sarcastic and i would say well which man do you feel like is it an nfl player you know is it a gay man do you have a name for this guy so great so once you start thinking about it that way Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. What's going on in my head that that it, this, with this feeling different thing? You, even though that is one of the components of, of gender dysphoria.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. And one of you know, one of the things that's starting to come to late too. Are y'all familiar with like the six six or so questions in um, DSM five about whether or not you have gender dysphoria? Because those questions in and in, in themselves literally take a non-conforming female and give them I think they only need like two or four of the six questions. But like I said, those, okay. those questions are worded in such a manner that the, the the nature of their nonconformity to begin with gives them an automatic gender dysphoria diagnosis. And that's really problematic.
2: Because uh-huh. it could have just been an autistic kid that was nonconforming because they didn't pick up on social cues or didn't care about conforming so much. I mean, that's, that's a symptom of, of autism, right? But once I get, once they were taught this narrative, it's easy to look back on our childhoods and find evidence. Of that goes back
1: Earlier, Where, what I was saying, yeah. about, you're, you're yeah. creating false memories about what, what was true and what wasn't true.
2: Yeah. Cause maybe, yeah. cause maybe, maybe it was just autism all along it, you know, that feeling of there's something different about me. Right. It's easy, so once let's say we're 15 and 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 learning that gender ideology, it's easy to look back on our histories and say, oh, well, I guess that's why I didn't fit into my social you know, circles when I was five. Right. Not seeing that. Well, maybe that was because of autism, that I wasn't fitting into my social social circles.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the questions is like you know, whether you have a strong desire to have the body of the opposite sex. Well, if I have a perceptional disorder that I feel like I'm a female, then that's going to give me a drive to want the body of the opposite sex. So, again, you know, I'm going to answer yes to that question. And I'm just steady checking Mm -hmm. boxes about why I should have a gender dysphoria
0: diagnosis
1: and Mm -hmm. and why I'm supposedly not really male.
0: We're already past an hour and a half. So we probably want to start uh, wrapping this up soon. But I was hoping you could uh, tell us about the um, the website that you have compiled the uh, endless database of of trans content. Ooh, the um, you know the, the website
1: will begin with it has to move as much as I do. I it, it's <laughs> it, it's had uh, y'all can all guess why, but I, it's had numerous takedowns. Um, The trans activists have have reported me numerous times um, because I have have dead names on there. Sorry, they're in the news articles. So I'm just reporting the news. But where where you're going is, you know, I have this massive website and it gets back to I I think I have Asperger's. And I spent nearly every single day, many, many hours every day from 2013 all the way up into probably late 2019 building this massive repository of media articles about all things trans. And then I've, I took those news articles and I broke them down into categories. And, and, and most importantly, I archived them because they, they're very prone to disappearing. And the funny thing about the archiving was, yeah, I was a tank mechanic in the military. So I don't have any formal training on you know, websites and none of these kinds of things. But I learned from the feminists you know, how to how to build these websites. You know, I, I would say I learned the most from from Kathy Brennan. Um, they often call her you know, head turf or whatever. <clears throat> I think that's unfair. But um, Brennan taught me by looking at her website, how to how to archive articles. I mean, she was amazing at that. So, I mean, there's like thousands of thousands of people. The latest home for the website is autogonophilia.me. And it's, I mean, it's, it's from A to Z on, on categories about why trans people are doing what they do. Blanchard you know, says the uh, autogonophilia is uh, best captured by what people say about themselves. And a lot, a lot of these articles are interviews with trans people. So this is trans people saying, you know, what their experience was, you know, what their trajectory was, and, and I've captured that. So yeah, it's, it's good stuff for researchers, good, good place for self-exploration too.
0: Yeah, I was blown away when you, because, yeah, the title of, of it is a bit misleading. It dot autogynophilia.me. And I was, I th- so I thought it was just going to be like a blog or something about your experience. And then I was like, oh, my God, this is a, a an endless database of anything trans related. So I highly recommend everybody check that out because you can just search a name and suddenly you've got 20 articles uh, regarding that person or that topic. And, yeah, it's incredibly useful. Yeah, the,
1: na- the name is a misnomer.
0: It's just you know that you know now
1: that I understand that I have autogonophilia, I, I wanted that domain because it was available, and everything else just got chucked in there. It, you know, it used to be under the transgender archives and various names, but like I said, the, you know, WordPress deleted me twice because of mm-hmm. complaints. Wow. Yeah. So now it's um, safely tucked away in Iceland. It's not part of America. It's not, it's not, it's out of the reach of the laws of EU and I can say whatever I want on there.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us. It's, it's been a pleasure. I've, I've been, when Aaron mentioned he had reached out to you and, and, and uh, you had agreed to to talk to us. I was really excited about it. As, as Aaron said in the beginning, you're world famous for your, for your journey. And, and I really respect and appreciate how open and, and honest you are um, about your experience, because that's exactly what we need at this hour, is, is just for people to, to open up and, and just be honest about what all of this is about. So... Mm.
1: Thank the three of you as well for, uh, for hosting me and letting me speak. I mean, I'm like blown away that that much time has went by already. <laughs> I've immensely enjoyed talking to y'all and, and learning from you as well.
0: So, mm-hmm. I know. I Speak yeah, for the rest of the room. So we'd love to have you back sometime if you'd be, if you'd be uh, willing. There's obviously so much we could talk about if you're if you'd be interested in coming back sometime. Yeah,
1: and, and I would highly encourage y'all on one of your future episodes, you know, take DSM-5, take those... Gender, you know, gender dysphoria criteria, and break that down and see what it looks like about how easy a lesbian could get a gender dysphoria diagnosis. I think the public would be shocked about that.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: The, the AGPs, we lie to get our diagnosis. Y'all get sucked in by design, which is tragic. Mm. Yep. Okay, everybody. Y'all take care. Stay you safe. Too. Thank you. Yeah.
3: Thank Thanks. you. <laughs>